Hi, this is Pastor Matt, and I want to welcome you to our Blue Oaks Church podcast. At the end of this episode, feel free to download our Blue Oaks Church app where you'll be able to access resources, events, and ways to get connected at Blue Oaks and in the community. The app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around Blue Oaks. Most importantly, though, I just hope that you enjoy this episode and it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Speaking of Christmas, we are 10 days away. Okay, so if you're not counting, I am. We are 10 days away from Christmas. And so with that in mind, I just want to kind of give you a few facts and figures about Christmas. That would be a fun thing to do. Now, this first one, one in three men waits until Christmas Eve to do their shopping. Shocking, I know, isn't it? One in three guys is like, I got this covered. There's time, there's time, there's time. But um, here's the thing, guys, if you're looking for gifts idea, uh, gift ideas for your you know, wife, 40, 47% of women, they want jewelry, all right? So Jared knows, apparently, and just go buy it from him, and you're covered. Guys, we tend to make it easy. 32% of men, they just want a gift voucher. Like, I don't know, give me a Bass Pro Shop something, or uh, just give me the car, I'll go and have fun there. 46% of people have lied about liking a gift. Now, I know that's none of you, because none of you would ever do that, right? But those other people, apparently they do. 61% of people say they're willing to take on more credit card debt for the holidays. 61% of people, apparently it's like, well, I guess you're worth it, and I'll end up paying 10 times what it's worth. But 61% of people, in fact, the average for 2019, the average spent per person uh, or by individual on Christmas just under $1,000, and it's been going up every year. Now, some of you hear that, you're like, that's nothing. I did read this this week, interesting left. A a, uh, financial advisor said you should only spend 1% of your annual income on Christmas gifts. So wherever you're at on that scale, just sit with that for a minute right there. But, you know, there's good and there's bad to that, right? Taking on more debt, more credit card debt, more not good, not good. Generously giving to the people that we care about and we love, that's generally good. That's generally good. And we, we love to do that. In fact, many of you were incredibly generous just over the last number of weeks in the donations of, of presents or uh, finances, money, or even your time with the holiday pop-up shop that just happened this last weekend. And we're going to give you a, an update on that a little bit later. But you were incredibly generous to people that you didn't, even, you didn't even know. And this week, we're continuing in our Prepare the Way series. And we're going to talk about this idea of preparing our hands. Now, we've talked about preparing our mind. We've talked about preparing our attitude. Why the hands? Why prepare our hands? Well, Aristotle referred to the hands as the tool of tools. Because the hands represent strength. The hands represent power. The hands represent protection. But the hands also represent hospitality. The hands also represent generosity. And and there's value in our hands. There's value in our hands. Now, think of it this way. Um, I always thought of it to myself this way. Like my hands with a basketball. My hands with a basketball put no value on that basketball other than the cost of the ball itself because I have absolutely no basketball skills. I love, but I'm just like, I'm horrible at it, okay? Like the two-inch vertical, that's about it for me. A basketball in the hands of Steph Curry It's worth $37 million a year. Those are valuable hands. Okay, power tools. Here's another one. 
power tools in my hands are nothing but dangerous to me and anybody standing close by me. Because I didn't grow up with power tools. I don't know how to use power tools. I'm like, a saw, cool. I literally had someone take a power saw away from me once. Because like, you're going to hurt yourself. We're just, this is for your own good. We're taking this away from you. But in the hands of a master craftsman, those tools can create only what the imagination holds. That's the value of our hands. We see over and over again instances where Jesus used his hands in relation to other people to bring value to them, to, to, to provide generously for them. We're told that, that he reached out, and when Peter hopped out of the boat, you know, there's a storm, and he sees Jesus walking. He's like, whoa, Jesus, and he hops out of the boat, and then suddenly realizes, like, huh, there's no boat under me. I'm now walking on water. Because he, what did Jesus do? He reached out his hand to grab Peter. We're told that when Jesus was speaking to 5,000 people and it's all day and they're starting to get hungry and they're like, man, what are we going to do? Jesus, there's a little boy with five loaves and two fishes. Jesus takes that little portion in his hands and multiplies it to feed 5,000 people. One other story is of a leprous man who comes to Jesus and he's saying, I believe you can heal me. I believe you can heal me. And we're told in Mark 141 that moved with pity or moved with compassion is the word that Jesus stretched out his hand healing the man. I mean, this was even part of like uh, Jewish culture as part of their communal thinking when it came to relationship with each other. In Deuteronomy 15, They were told, if anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites, if any of the towns of the land of the Lord your God has given you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. And so you see in the early church from way back in the the beginning of the story of the nation of Israel through the, the life of Jesus that the church lived with this open-handed compassion to other people. The earliest church, it wasn't something that they had to be taught or like, hey guys, don't forget. I mean, it's just something they lived out. They practiced because they had watched Jesus do it. They had heard Jesus teach it to them. In the very beginning of the church in Acts chapter 2, we see as they were gathered in these these little communities that if a need came up, in in Acts chapter 2 verse 45, if, if a need came up, they'd be like, well, I got this extra stuff. Let's just sell that stuff and I'll help provide for your need because that's what we do, right? We're a community of like minded people. In Acts chapter 6, in the beginning of the chapter, you see this story of of a group coming to the the, the leaders of the church at the time going, hey, we've got this, this disadvantaged group over here. It's the widows in our community, and they're suffering. They're not being provided for. And so you get this whole story of how they come together and go, all right, here's what we need to do. We're going to set aside these people, and we're going to make sure they're taken care of. Boom, because this is what we do as a community. We take care of those who are in need. In James 1.27, we see their concept of how even that applies to religion, where James says religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. So this idea of open-handed compassion was just, it was a natural part of the early church. And as the church began to grow outside of Palestine and and spread throughout the world, we see even early history giving us examples of the compassion of the church. Um, 
uh, Dionysius of Corinth, this is about 170 AD, he wrote this of the generosity of the Church of Rome. And he said, from the beginning you had the custom of helping all the brethren in many sorts of ways and sending support to many congregations in all the cities. And through these gifts you have been sending all along, you have eased the poverty of the needy. In the second century, Aristides, who is an Athenian philosopher who eventually became a Christ follower because of what he saw, he wrote about the social consciousness of the church. And here's what he wrote. They have, com- they have the commands of the Lord Jesus Christ himself graven upon their hearts. They despise not the widow, nor oppress the orphan. And he that has gives ungrudgingly for the maintenance of him who has not. If they see a stranger, they take him under their roof. Rejoice over him as a brother, for they call themselves brethren not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Jumping ahead to the 4th century, there was a, a, a plague that began to spread through the Roman Empire. And in one of the cities, the Roman city of Caesarea, the people began to flee the city because the city was sort of like the, the epicenter. And they're like, man, if we stay here, chances are we're not making it out. So they began to flee. But one group of people stayed in the city to care for the needy, to care for the sick, to care for the dying. It was the Christians. And an early church historian, Eusebius, he recorded this about the Christians. All day long, some of them, he said, tended to the dying and to the burial, countless numbers with no one to care for them. Others gathered together from all parts of the city, a multitude of those withered from famine and distributed bread to them all. And he goes on to state that because of the compassion, the Christians were showing this open-fisted, open-handed compassion in the midst of the plague, the Christians' deeds were on everyone's lips, and they glorified the God of the Christians. Now, some of you have been in church for a long, long time. Maybe you grew up in church, or you've just been attending church for a long, long time. And I guarantee you, some of you in here are already thinking this. You're already thinking like, I know where this is going. I already know where this is going. You're going to tell me I got to give up my latte a day. You're going to tell me I'm not doing enough. You're going to get ready for the get. Some of you are thinking, man, why did I ask them to come sit with me today of all days? Why did I ask today? You know, okay, listen, no, no, I want to put your mind in. That is not what today is about. That's not what you're going to hear today. Here's what I want us to hear today. Here's what I hope we see today as we walk through this concept of preparing our hands, that compassion isn't just something we give towards. It's not just something we do occasionally. It's meant to be who we are. You see, the early church was a leader in compassion in its community, and we still should be. Now, we see this, the the concept of compassion is simply understood as this. It's simply recognizing the suffering, the needs of others. But what separates compassion from pity, what separates compassion from just sympathy is action. You see, compassion then puts something, an effort, compassion puts movement behind the recognition of the need of others. The component that separates compassion from sympathy is action. Compassion gets involved. Where others are going to kind of step back and go, man, I don't know if I want to get engaged in that, or they keep their distance from those who are in need. Compassion prompts action on their behalf. And the Bible is filled with demonstrations and examples of compassion shown to others on behalf of Christ. 
We're going to look at one story encounter Jesus had with an expert in the law in, in the book of Luke, in Luke chapter 10. If you're not familiar with the Bible, you know, there's the different books in it. Luke, this particular Bible, is uh, written on, from eyewitness accounts. Luke, the author, you know, interviewed all these people, like, man, you were there. What happened? Let me write this down. What did he say? What did they do? And so the entire account of the book of Luke, it's written from eyewitnesses who were there. It's like taking their testimony. And so he's writing this, and we're going to look at this one encounter Jesus has with this expert in the law where Jesus, in response to this guy, he tells him a story. And Jesus would do this a lot. Jesus would tell stories. You know, we live in a day and age where if you're called a storyteller, it's not necessarily a good thing. You know, like, oh, you're a story. But, you know, for Jesus, he would use this a lot to get his point across to people. They're referred to as parables. And a parable is simply a story to get across a moral or a, or a spiritual principle. And I started thinking this week, you know, it's always interesting, well, why did Jesus talk in stories a lot? What's the power of a story? And I read this, author Ray Lebeck wrote this about the use of stories. He said, through stories, we learn how to see patterns. We learn cause and effect. We learn how to discover the consequences of our choices, our sense of right and wrong, and of what our most important or least valuable things are in life. All of these are shaped for us by the stories we hear and then live. Because stories give us an opportunity to kind of place ourselves in the middle of it, and then determine, wow, what is it? Who, who are we really? What do we really care about? And so Jesus would use these stories. Jesus would use these parables often to get his point across. And so let, let's look at this encounter Jesus has with this expert in the law in Luke chapter 10. It start, I'm going to read it. The scriptures will be up on the screen for you. It says at the beginning of verse 25, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what's written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? And, and he said, well, now I know this. I'm an expert in the law. You're asking, I mean, it's kind of a setup question. Like, I, you ask the question, you already know the answer. He goes, I got this one. He answered, verse 27, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. Question asked and answered, right? I mean, that's an easy one. You know, what do I need to do? Well, what does the law say? Well, the law says this, great, go do it. Uh, done. Can I move on now? Can we go? But the, the expert in the law, he's not done with this yet because we're told the very beginning is he came to test Jesus, right? It's not like, hey, I really need to know this. I've been struggling with this. Like his motives aren't necessarily pure in this whole thing. So verse 29, it goes on. He wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? If I'm supposed to love God and love my neighbor, like, well, who's my neighbor? That's kind of an honest question, isn't it? But not really for him. You see, he's an expert in the law. He knew who his neighbor was. Because in the culture, Jewish culture, it was defined who your neighbor was. If for a lot of us, we've defined, well, I know who my neighbor are. My neighbors, well, they're my family. They're the ones close to me that I care about. My neighbors are the one, you know, we're, we're like-minded. My neighbors are, well, it's, it's my ethnicity or my neighbors. It's, it's, my, it's my race. It's those who are close to me. It's my circle. These are my neighbors. These are who I define. You see, the, the, the expert in the law is not asking Jesus out of this, hey, Lord, I'm wrestling with this. Like, how do I love my neighbor? I need to understand who my neighbor is. He's asking in a way to be given limits. 
Because when we get a limit on who's my neighbor, what does that do? Well, now I don't have to feel a greater sense of responsibility. I can just define it to this one group. That's all I need to care about so I can love God and then love these people, and I'm good to go. But Jesus isn't going to leave it there. And so Jesus tells him this story, tells him this parable to kind of expand his understanding a little bit. In verse 30, it goes on. In reply, Jesus says to him, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. And they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. So this guy's taking this journey, and it's a dangerous road. It's not a road you would travel often by yourself. But honestly, I sort of think we don't really have roads like this around us. Like those of you who have to commute down to San Jose or stuff, like going over the Sonoma Pass, you're not worried that someone's going to like carjack you as you're driving through. You know, you're worried about other things because people drive crazy nowadays. And so that, but you know, we're not really worried about this kind of situation that this guy finds himself in. But he's traveling alone. The, no, the road is known for this kind of stuff. And he gets beaten. He gets left probably for half dead. A priest, verse 31, happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity. The word means felt compassion on him. So three people come walking by, this poor guy just left there for dead on the road. Two of them see him, see the need, and make a decision to just, no, not today, and just walk on by. Two of the neighbors, were not very neighborly, saw a need, ignored the need, and then just left the man in need and moved right on. But the third not so with the Samaritan. Why? Why? The, um, the day before Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, he gave his very last speech, his very last sermon to a group of people at the Mason Temple in Memphis, Tennessee. And it's known as the I've been to the mountaintop speech. And in that speech, he talks about this parable. It's the Good Samaritan parable. And when I read this this week, there's a part, there's a couple parts, but there was one part that it literally just stopped me when I read it. And so I want to read to you what, what Martin Luther King Jr. said about this parable on that night. He says this, One day, a man came to Jesus. He wanted to raise some questions about some vital matters of life. And at points, he wanted to trick Jesus and show him that he knew a little bit more than Jesus knew and throw him off base. Now, that question... Who's my neighbor? That question could have easily ended up in a philosophical or a theological debate. But Jesus immediately pulled that question from midair and placed it on a dangerous curve between Jerusalem and Jericho. And he talked about a certain man who fell among the thieves. And you remember that a, a Levite and a priest passed by on the other side. They didn't stop to help him. Finally, a man of another race came by. He got down from his beast and decided not to be compassionate by proxy. He got down with him, administered first aid, helped the man in need. 
Now, he goes on to say, you know we use our imagination a great deal to try to determine why the priest, why the Levite didn't stop. And at times we say, well, they were busy going to a church meeting, a, an ecclesiastical gathering. They had to get down to Jerusalem so they wouldn't be late for their meeting. Maybe they felt it was better to deal with the problem from a causal route rather than to get bogged down with an individual effect. And then listen to what he says here. He says, but I'm going to tell you what my imagination tells me. It's possible that those men were afraid. You see, the Jericho Road is a dangerous road. It's winding. It's a meandering road. It's really conductive for ambushing. In the days of Jesus, it came to be known as the Bloody Pass. And you know, it's possible that the priest and the Levite looked over that man on the ground and wondered if the robbers were still around. Or it's possible that they felt that the man on the ground was merely faking, that he was acting like he had been robbed and hurt in order to seize them and lure them there for a quick and easy seizure. And so the first question that the priest, the first question that the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But then the Good Samaritan came by. And he reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? And I read that. And I, I literally stopped and kind of sat back in my chair. And I was like, oh, man, it's like we have to pause there for a moment. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? And I started to think, what are the things that stop us? What are the things that make us pause? What are the things that hinder us from stepping in and engaging in acts of compassion for other people? And I just started making a list of things. Sometimes it's insecurity. I just don't know what to do. I just don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not quite sure. And it's, it's just, I don't, I'm not gifted enough. I'm not talented. I don't have what's needed. It's just, it's insecurity. For others, maybe it's arrogance. It's below me. I've attained and achieved certain things in my life, and it's just below me to engage in that. Maybe it's scarcity for you. I don't even have enough resources for myself. I, I can't even think of trying to help somebody else in any way because of a sense of scarcity. It's ignorance for some, which is kind of amazing. But like, what, there's a need? Uh, I didn't even know there was a need. Maybe for others, it's apathy. Apathy is, it's not my issue, it's, it's their issue. It has nothing to do with me. Indifference, maybe? I just don't care. Don't care. Complete. For some, maybe it's just exhaustion. For some of you, maybe it's just like, I'm just so tired. I cannot take on more emotionally, physically, spiritually even, I'm just exhausted by giving out to other people. All of these are things that can stop us from engaging in acts of compassion. But the attitude of the Samaritan was simply this. If I don't stop to help this man, what's going to happen to him? So look what he does. Verse 33, again, when he saw him, he took pity. The word is felt compassion. It's the same word when I read to you about Jesus reaching out his hand to heal the leprous man. 
He felt compassion on him. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, which is an entire day's wages. He gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I'll reimburse you any extra expense you may have. You see, the Samaritan's attitude drove him to a compassion that got involved. The Samaritan's attitude was, drove him to a compassion that prompted action on, on behalf of this guy. He's like, I, I can't just leave him here. I mean, what's going to happen to him if I do? So Jesus now, telling this story, he looks at this expert in the law, and he says this in verse 36. Which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Which, it seems pretty easy question, right? But it's a total setup. It's what you love about Jesus. You know what? He loves us, but sometimes he'll put us in that position where it's like, oh, you got me. Yeah. And this is where the, the expert in the law is right now. He's like, oh, you got me. Because he can't say the priest. He can't say the Levite. He's got to say the Samaritan. But the Jews and the Samaritans, man, they're, they're like Raider and 49er fans, okay? Like, there's no love between the two. Like, there's the good, godly team, and then there's the dark side. And I'll let you figure out which is which right there. But there's, and there's a whole historical, cultural reason for this. But there's animosity between these two groups. And the, and, and the expert in the law does not want to say the Samaritan. But he can't choose the other two. Because they weren't the neighbors. So the expert in the law has to reply... Verse 37, well, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Well, do what? Love God, love your neighbor. See, here's in essence what Jesus did through this parable to, to the expert in the law and for us reading it today. To love God is to expand our neighborhood. To love God is to expand our neighborhood outside of whatever that little circle is that we want to make it. And to live compassionately. You see, in light of this, the, the, the expert in the law, he has to live differently now. He can't just walk around saying, I love God, but you I'm not sure about anymore. Because Jesus has now turned this whole thing on him. John, who was a disciple of Jesus and walked with him for three plus years also, he wrote this in 1 John chapter 3. He said, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity, shows no compassion on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech but with actions and truth. Now, here's the part where those of you who've grown up in the church and earlier you were thinking, oh, man, this is going to be guilt and it's going to be one of those kind of things. Here's where, no, it's not, the hammer's not about to come down. I can't, I'm going to do the exact opposite with you. I want to encourage you right now because one of the values that this church was founded on was compassion. One of the values that drives what we do is compassion, this sense of irrational generosity to the community that surrounds us to show and demonstrate the love of Christ. And so I want to encourage you by telling you, you're some pretty incredibly compassionate people. All right? And so listen to some of this. This is through our compassion uh, partners and through the Love the Tri-Valley initiative. Here's some of what you as a church, you as Christ followers, have accomplished in what you've done. We are driving an investment of $500,000 
into our compassion partners in this Tri-Valley, in the different outreaches, and the different partners that we're a part of. This is like bottom line. It's in the budget. This is like, this is not our money. This is money that's going out and doing that. And that is money that you are giving to reach others through compassion and demonstrating the love of Christ. Now, that doesn't even include the value of volunteer hours. And time is far more valuable than money. Speaking of time, it's an estimated uh, uh, over 1,000 volunteer hours. As many of you have, have you know, participated in an event or gone and served, a lot of you do it on a regular, ongoing basis. You're like, hey, it's my monthly thing. It's my weekly thing. I go and I do this. And you give of your time to go. Did you know there are 30, over 30 chapel services held every month in assisted care facilities around the valley? You're not going to do the math, but I'll do it for you. That's more than these services that we have in a month. Over 30 a month, uh, leading, you know, people in the assisted care facilities and worship and Bible study. 6,500 crayon kits were delivered to hospitals worldwide that were packed in this room on our serve day that we had. And now have gone around the world serving others. 22,800 meals have been delivered around the world that you have packed. That you took the time to measure and you put those in. They're buying, you know, everyone has a great time. People are now eating because you took the time to do that. 280 hygiene kits were delivered to the homeless through the city team. And the holiday pop-up shop, so I referenced that earlier, just happened Thursday through yesterday. Lissy was texting me last night some of the, uh, an update about this. I was just like, oh, my gosh. So, Holly Papa Shop, over 400 families representing 1,112 kids in Pleasanton and Dublin were served over the last three days. These are families and these are kids. Look, you can clap for that. That's awesome. These are family and kids who probably, in all likelihood, would not have had anything for Christmas. And through your generosity and your compassion... They have a Christmas now. The, the total is 2,120 kids when you add in toys that were sent to Livermore also to serve there. The total value of the toys donated, $55,000 was given towards this. And a total, over the last three years that the, the holiday shop has been up and operating, a total of 6,400 people in our community have been served. That's compassion in action. And this is who we want to be and who we are as a church. But here's the thing. Sometimes we don't realize the bigger picture that's in play. We see our one little part. And we say, well, I did this or I did that. But you don't see a bigger picture. And, and Jesus said an amazing thing in Matthew chapter 25 where he's, he's talking about this day that's coming where, in essence, we're going to be held accountable for the lives we live and, and the choices that we made. And here's what he says. He says in Matthew chapter 25, verse 34, the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Awesome. But what's so great is the response, verse 37, the righteous will answer him, what? Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothes you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did 
for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. That action that you took on behalf of the most vulnerable in our community, socially or or psychologically or, or physically or economically, when you did it for them, you did it for me. Now, to to show you what I mean by this, the greater impact, just your one little action you think you're taking has, I want you to take a moment, watch this video. One of the outward signs we're becoming more Christ-centered is a choice to heal the brokenness in our world by generously giving our time, our love, and our resources. Blue Oak's Compassion Partnerships provide you with an opportunity to use your God-given talents and abilities to make a difference in our community and in the world. But sometimes it can feel as if one simple act doesn't make that much of a difference. I'm only gardening or packing meals or it's just a drop in a bucket. Nothing you do is an isolated activity. When you engage and serve with one of our compassion partners, it has a ripple effect. Let us show you how. Sunflower Hill is a nonprofit organization working to create a sustainable residential community for individuals with special needs. Sunflower Hill has a garden at the Hagman Ranch where many of you have served by weeding, planting, harvesting, composting, and performing general maintenance. The garden's produce starts this story. The food grown by Sunflower Hill is donated to the disadvantaged in the local community. Some of this produce ends up on the tables at the Stable Cafe in Pleasanton, where once a month members of the special needs community have the opportunity to learn key life skills by serving in the restaurant. But that one tomato seed you planted may also end up in a meal at Open Heart Kitchen, where Sunflower Hill also donates produce. Open Heart Kitchen serves prepared, nutritious meals free of charge to the hungry people of the Tri-Valley. It is the largest hot meal program of its kind in the area. Last year, Open Heart Kitchen served 328,000 meals to the community. Open Heart Kitchen's weekend bag lunch program addresses the nutritional gap of more than 2,750 Tri-Valley children who receive free or reduced lunches during the school week but lack a secure source of nutrition over the weekend. Bag lunches are distributed to schools in Pleasanton, Livermore, and Dublin every week helping to mitigate the physical and emotional impacts of hunger for students here in our community. Many of you have served families hot meals prepared or those bagged lunches. You have served hope and love through those meals and lunches. And the 1,000 children in the Pleasanton Unified School District living below the poverty line have felt, even tasted, the impact. The Mariachi Program, an after-school enrichment program in Pleasanton, supports these students. They can learn to play an instrument, receive tutoring, take courses in coding, robotics, along with enrichment classes in art, science, and African dance. This program benefits students in second through 12th grades and uses a holistic and culturally relevant approach to support them and their families. Some of you have served either at the summer camps or at the different courses offered. And did you know that by serving the program, you connect these children to a Christmas of joy? The Mariachi program is one of the biggest referral sources for the Holiday Pop-Up Shop. The Holiday Pop-Up Shop was launched in 2017 by Blue Oaks Church, the Pleasanton Unified School District, and Valley Community Church. The goal is to create an environment where low-income parents could shop for the Christmas gifts for their children. On Thursday nights in October, the families sign up to shop at the Holiday Pop-Up Shop, which takes place in December each year and just did this weekend. In the last two years, you have impacted over 4,000 families in need through your donations and your volunteer hours at the toy shop. Everyone, no matter their socioeconomic status, can give back to the place where the story started, people with special needs. 
Night to Shine is an unforgettable prom night experience centered on God's love for people with special needs aged 14 and older. Launched by the Tim Tebow Foundation in 2015, Night to Shine has grown to a worldwide movement of 600 churches in 24 countries through 200,000 volunteers, serving 100,000 guests. Night to Shine Tri-Valley is one of the largest prom nights in the world. This year, 450 people with special needs, 600 parents, caregivers, and over 850 volunteers created a special night at the Alameda County Fairgrounds in Pleasanton. This event is 100% volunteer-led and locally funded. This year, Blue Oaks is the host church, organizing and facilitating the event for our community. Many of you have served as escorts for the prom attendees, hosted the parents and caregivers during the event, or transformed the fairgrounds into an unforgettable prom setting. This is just a glimpse of what God is doing in our community through you and in partnership with these organizations. And these are only a few of our Compassion Partners. We also serve with Foster the Bay, City Team Oakland, and many local senior care facilities. So you might feel like you're just gardening, tutoring, or packaging meals, but your serving has a ripple effect. Your story is part of a grander story, one that God is telling in our community where His love, hope, and joy is for all people. And when you offer your hands in service, God uses them to touch others and change lives. Are you willing to make a drop in the bucket? Or as we say, are you willing to join us? So you begin to see that, there you go. You begin to see how no one act, no one hour given in a garden, no one dollar donated to the Love the Tri-Valley Initiative is done by itself, is done in this isolated sense. It contributes to a greater, grander story that God is writing through us as a church and through you as his follower. Now, you've seen that perspective of how, you know, we're contributing all this, but now I want you to just hear it from the perspective of someone who has been on the, on the receiving end of the compassion that you've shown. Watch Jessica's story. Hi, my name is Jessica Joette. I'm a, I'm a senior at Avondor Valley High School, and I learned about Not to Shine during, I think, was my sophomore year of high school. My mom helped me do my hair and makeup, and I was wearing this green dress. We take a limo ride, take a short limo ride to, to like the red car carpet where paparazzi is waiting. And with the paparazzi, everybody makes, it makes everybody feel like a movie star. And you walk the red carpet to the, to the main event. Sometimes people can get like bullied and and, and not feel like they're not important because of people like teasing them, like, like people say autism are viewed as the weird kids that, that nobody wants to hang out with. It makes them feel less important. But when they get crowned, when they get the crown and, and be named king and queen, or king and or queen, it makes them feel like they're very important. Like they feel like they're on top of the world. I don't want bullying. I want people to feel like they matter and how special they are. Yeah, if if you if you have fortune at the shine before and you're planning on on doing it again, I highly recommend it. And if you haven't, 
I really suggest that you do. Not only will, will you be serving God through it, you'll be helping someone who doesn't feel, who feels like they're insignificant or worth it, feel like the, the true prince or princess he or she is. So just imagine if the reputation of Blue Oaks as a church, for all the things churches can be known for nowadays, imagine if our reputation was built off how well we love and serve those in our community. Imagine if the people who surround you, your, maybe your family, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, whoever it might be, imagine if they said to you, you know, I'm not sure I believe in the Jesus you do. I'm not ready to worship the God that you do. Man, the way you treat other people, I'm interested to know more. Simply because of the compassion that we show. Isaiah 58.1 says this, If you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like noonday. So, what's in your hands that you can use? to display, to show compassion, kindness, to demonstrate the love of God to someone and the fact that you care. What's in your hands? Because as a church, we're going to continue to ask the question, if we don't stop to help them, what will happen to them? And our challenge as Christ followers is to continue to ask ourselves the question, if I don't stop to help them, What's going to happen to them? Let's pray. Lord, one, we blown away. We are so thankful at what you have done through us as a church. Lord, I thank you for what this group has done as a community, as individuals, reaching out to the people that surround us who need to know, who don't just need something. They need to know that you love them and through their works of compassion and the time that they give, and how, Lord, our valley knows that there is a God who loves them. Lord, we thank you for what you have done through us as a church, reaching out to others. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to open our eyes, expanding our neighborhood, our understanding of who our neighbors are, and that, Lord, as you move us, that we would move out compassionately to those who surround us. Irrational generosity to those who are in need as a demonstration of who you are and the love that you have. Continue to do your work through us, Lord, and we will point people towards you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In just a moment, uh, the worship team is going to lead us in a final song, and we'll worship Hey, once again, thanks for listening. We hope you found something in this week's message to take away and apply to your life this week. Uh, if you live in the Bay Area, we would love to have you join us for one of our weekend services. We meet on Sunday mornings at 8.45, 10, and 11.15. Uh, for directions or information about what we have for you or your family, your students, you can go to blueoaks.church or download the app today.